Welcome back to Case of the Sunday Scaries. I'm Elise, and I am back for a solo episode today. And wow, is this a heavy one. But first, I just wanted to say thank you all for your patience. I know you haven't heard from us in a couple of weeks, but I started a new position. And so I have been working to understand my new role. But I am back, and boy, do I have a case for you. The most common question I get about this podcast is, what cases have you researched that have stuck with you the most? As someone who has a tendency to feel a little deeper than I would like to, even for the situations around me that don't involve me, there are a handful of cases that haunt me long after I am done with the research. This is one such case. Not only because of the absolute depravity and cruelness of the crimes, but because there are so many questions left unanswered to this day. I say this all as a warning to our listeners. This case will basically touch on every content warning there is. Domestic abuse, sexual abuse, torture, and animal cruelty. If you are particularly sensitive to these topics, then please skip this episode. I always try to keep the victims and survivors of these crimes as the focus of this podcast, But with so much of this story a mystery to this day, this episode, or possibly two episodes because there is a lot to cover, might be slightly different in that I want to take a look into what made this man. How does someone inflict so much harm to others, even recruiting people to be his accomplices? We will be diving deep into the darkest parts of his background to try to make sense of the senseless. I had to take breaks in doing the research for this case. It was very disturbing and emotionally heavy. So with that warning, please protect your mental and emotional health. If this subject matter is triggering to you, then please skip this episode. We'll be back, especially during spooky season, with episodes that will be better suited to you. With all that said, today we are diving into the life and crimes of David Ray Parker a serial rapist and suspected serial killer who is thought to have killed over 40 people and abducted and raped over 60. This is the Toy Box Killer. Cynthia Vigil did not have an easy life. At just 22 years old, she had gone through more tragedy than most will ever experience in their lifetime. According to her website, CynthiaVigil.com, at the tender age of 11, she experienced sexual abuse by a family member and ran away to go live with her mother. Unfortunately, living with her mother wouldn't provide her with the safe home life she deserved. Instead, her mom seemed to view Cynthia as another party buddy, and even though Cynthia was just a preteen, her mom brought her around to bars and parties with her. But just four years later, her mother would be found alongside the road, murdered and discarded in a ditch. Cynthia had nowhere left to turn, so she leaned on what she knew, a life of hard partying and the wrong company, turning to sex work in order to survive. When Cynthia was just out of her teen years, she would experience tragic loss again when her best friend was murdered at the hands of one of their Johns. Cynthia also faced continued abuse at the hands of her own boyfriend. Cynthia was not unfamiliar with the darkness and evilness in this world, but while working in Albuquerque, New Mexico, she would come face to face with pure evil. On March 19, 1999, Cynthia was approached in a parking lot by an undercover police officer. He showed her his badge and placed her under arrest for the solicitation of prostitution, handcuffing her wrists and escorting her back to his vehicle. However, the officer who had arrested her was not a police officer at all. His name was David Ray Parker, 
a maintenance man for the New Mexico State Park Service. The vehicle that he brought Cynthia to? Well, it was not an unmarked police car. No, he brought her to his RV. And when the doors to the RV opened, Cynthia was met with Cindy, David's girlfriend and accomplice, who shocked her with a cattle prod before they dragged her to the back of the RV and restrained her to a cabinet door. As they went down the road, Cynthia knew she had to figure out a way to try to escape. Somehow, Cynthia managed to get her hands free of their bindings, but just as she was plotting her escape, David hit the brakes and Cynthia went tumbling, alerting them that she was no longer restrained to that cabinet door. David pulled over and Cynthia's last memory was of an angry David coming to the back of the RV. And then everything went black. Just outside Truth and Consequences, New Mexico, yes, that's actually the town's name. It sounds like a town right out of a Goosebumps book. And listeners, if you are not old enough to know what Goosebump books are, you are far too young to be listening to this episode. But just outside of Truth and Consequences is a tiny town named Elephant Butte. So small, in fact, that in 1999, its population was less than 300 people. This small town was nestled right next to Elephant Butte Reservoir, a waterway that is 40 miles long, as deep as 157 feet in some areas, and boasts over 200 miles of shoreline. You would think in a town that small, everyone must know everyone's business, right? How could they not? But it seemed no one took much notice of the goings-ons that were happening in the mobile home at 513 Bass Road, or what sinister secrets the white trailer parked behind it held. When David Ray Parker pulled into his driveway, he carried what we suspect was a very heavily drugged Cynthia to the trailer, opening the door to what David referred to as his toy box. Once inside, he fit a dog collar around her neck, secured it with a padlock, and strapped her to a table that very much resembled a gynecologist chair. For the 5% of our listeners who are male, and have not had the displeasure of a yearly visit to the gynecologist, let me explain. These chairs are similar to a doctor's table in an exam room, with a middle seam that separates the upper and lower half, allowing for the upper part to recline flat or sit upright. The lower half has these humiliating stirrups that separate and lift your legs, allowing access to your most private bits. Yeah, it's as humiliating and vulnerable as it sounds. David chained Cynthia to the chair, her legs now raised into these homemade stirrups, her neck restrained by a dog collar, and her arms pinned beside her. I cannot imagine having experienced so much loss and abuse at the hands of others what must have been going through Cynthia's mind when she came to inside of the toy box, restrained naked to a chair, surrounded by pictures and drawings of vile sexual acts, chains, cattle prods, and homemade sexual torture devices on every inch of the walls and counters around her. Looking up to see a tape recorder pointed in her direction, and near the ceiling, a mirror, positioned in a way that she could see the reflection of her face and body. Would she end up like her mother and her best friend? What would happen next to her? Soon David himself would answer that question for her as a cassette player flipped on, and when the static subsided, the cold and emotionless voice of David Ray Parker filled the trailer. Okay, we both know what you've been brought here for. A lot of and Your wrists and ankles are chained and you're gagged because you're not going to like the way I do it. You're going to be kept here naked and chained down. I'm going to use you for a sex slave. I have read the entire transcript of this recording that David made. 
and played for the women that he kidnapped, and I would encourage you not to seek it out. There are some parts of it that I cannot and will not discuss because the detail into which he describes the numerous horrors he is going to inflict on his captive, I just can't bring myself to even say. David laid out very descriptively that he would be holding Cynthia as a sex slave, that himself and his girlfriend would be committing all sorts of horrific sexual acts on her, but he also mentioned that she might leave the trailer at times to rest or when his buddies wanted to take part in their fun. But the most sadistic acts would always be carried out here in the toy box. I guess in this small town, it wasn't that no one was unaware of what he was doing. It's that as long as they could take a turn, they just kept David's secret. He also explained that he would use his pet dogs in these depraved acts. I won't go into more detail than that because that just adds another layer to the hell on earth that was happening to these victims that is so disturbing that I cannot bring myself to speak on it. This tape, which was so long and detailed in its explanation of the torture these women would be subject to, the rules for their stay, that it had two sides to it and ran for about 40 minutes. 40 minutes of being strapped to a bed, hearing every detail of what is to come. 40 minutes of listening to David explain that nothing you say or do to try to escape will ever be successful, and that if you do find a way to cause pain to David or others, or even just annoy him, that he wouldn't hesitate to slit your throat like he had the others. This is quoted from David's audio recording. I'm sure that you want to survive this experience, and I want you to as well, but you are expendable, and it's no big deal to go out and snatch a replacement. Like I said before, I don't like killing the girls that we bring here, but occasionally things happen. What can I say? I would really hate to have to dump that pretty little body off in a canyon somewhere to rot, I'm not trying to scare you. That's just the way it is. They say that I'm cold and compassionless. Now I treat people like I do objects as a means to my own pleasure. And I suppose they're right to a certain extent. You are expendable. It may sound harsh and cold, but I won't have any qualms at all about slicing your throat. The feeling of hope leaving you with every recorded word. I cannot imagine. But one of many things that stuck out to me about this tape was, at what point, at how many victims, do you get so tired of repeating yourself that you find it necessary to save yourself the trouble and instead script it out and record it? Cynthia must have been thinking the same thing. It was clear in this recording that he was not only a sadistic sexual abuser, but he had murdered others before, and if she broke any of his rules, she would meet the same fate. Near the end of the tape, in his own words, the smallest glimmer of hope, if you can even call it that, was outlined. This is a quote, again, from David's audio tape. I have only admitted the expletives. Quote, Now I've already told you that you're going to be here a month or two, maybe three, if you keep us turned on. If it's up to my lady, we'll keep you indefinitely. She says it's just as much fun and less risky. But personally, I like variety. A fresh now and then to play with. We take four or five different girls each year, depending on our urges and sometimes accidental encounters. Basically, I guess we're like predators. We're always looking. Occasionally, some sweet little thing will break down on the side of the road, walking, bicycling, jogging. Anytime an opportunity like that presents itself, and if it's not too risky, we'll grab her, even if we've already got a captive in my playroom. Variety is definitely the spice of life. Now, I'm sure that you're going to be a great little piece of a- 
and you're going to be a lot of fun to play with, but I will get tired of you eventually. If I killed every that we kidnapped, there'd be bodies strung all over the country. And besides, I don't like killing a girl unless it's absolutely necessary. So I've devised a safe, alternate method of disposal. I had plenty of to practice on over the years, so I've pretty much well got it down pat, and I enjoy doing it. I get off on the mind games. After we get completely through with you, you're going to be drugged up real heavy with a combination of sodium pentanol and phenobarbital. They're both hypnotic drugs that will make you extremely susceptible to hypnosis, auto-hypnosis, and hypnotic suggestion. You're going to be kept drugged a couple of days while I play with your mind. By the time I get done brainwashing you, you're not going to remember a thing about this little adventure. You won't remember this place, us, or what has happened to you. There won't be any DNA evidence because you'll be bathed and both holes between your legs will be thoroughly flushed out. You'll be dressed, sedated, and turned loose on some country road. Bruised, then David laughs. Sore all over, but nothing that won't heal up in a week or two. The thought of being brainwashed may not be appealing to you, but we've been doing it a long time, and it works. And it's the lesser of two evils. I'm sure you would prefer that in lieu of being strangled or having your throat cut. Be smart and be a survivor. Have a nice day. Cynthia, strapped to the chair, suffered hours and hours of sexual abuse at the hands of David and Cindy inside that toy box. In the rare times that they were not abusing her, she was brought into their home and the dog collar padlocked around her neck was chained to a pole near a filthy mattress that she could use as a bed with only a bucket next to her to relieve herself. Throughout the home, there were signs, reminders perhaps to Cindy from David of the rules. One such sign read, if they're worth taking, they're worth keeping. Cynthia knew she only had three ways of making it out of this hell. Play her role as he had outlined it to her and be the victim of continued abuse and torture for God knows how long until they possibly released her. Find a way to escape or die at their hands. Cynthia, who had already survived so much in her 22 years of life, made the decision to do whatever she could to survive this. On the third day of her captivity, Cynthia was inside, chained to the pole by the bed when David left for work. Yes, this man somehow did all these deplorable acts, then grabbed a coffee and went off to work every day. How? I can barely keep my life straight, much less play a continuous role of Jekyll and Hyde. Anyways, Cindy received a phone call, and while distracted on that call, Cynthia noticed that Cindy had made a huge mistake. She had left the keys to Cynthia's padlock within her reaching distance. Cynthia shimmied and reached and stretched and finally got the keys in her hand and began struggling to unlock herself. This must have caused a bit of noise because Cindy came running back into the room and saw that Cynthia was trying to escape. Cindy picked up a lamp and hit Cynthia with it, shattering the glass lamp. The only thing between Cynthia and her freedom was Cindy, and the two engaged in quite a fight. Cynthia was able to grab an ice pick and she hit Cindy in the head with it. Wait. I just realized something. What the heck was an ice pick doing in the middle of this living room? Actually, never mind. With this case, I don't even want to know. I'm just grateful it was there when Cynthia needed it. As Cindy grabbed her head in pain, Cynthia ran from the living room and out the door. She was free. But where was she? What direction should she even run? She had no idea where she was. And what's more, remember the recording? David had said that his neighbors and friends joined in on his evil pastime. 
So even if she found someone, would they help her or just return her to David, where she would most likely be killed for the damage she inflicted on Cindy? But she had to take this chance, and so completely naked, barefoot, with a dog collar around her neck and covered in blood, Cynthia ran. The first car she came upon, the woman in the car must have been so frightened by the sight of her that she continued driving away. I want to say in a situation like that that I would stop and help, but my God, can you imagine? You're just doing a little carpool karaoke down a back gravel road, and just as you're about to hit the high note, a bloody naked woman with a chain around her neck is running towards you, and you have no idea who might be chasing her. I don't know what I would do in this situation, but this lady kept on driving. Cynthia continued running and came upon a trailer. She didn't even knock, and thankfully the door was unlocked because she threw that door open, and inside an unsuspecting older woman was just washing up her dishes. Her husband heard the commotion and came into the room and froze when he saw her, shocked at the sight in front of him. Instead of turning her away, these good Samaritans helped her. The woman called 911, and the husband got his robe to cover Cynthia and assured her he would keep her safe. After a lifetime of suffering and three days of sadistic abuse, Cynthia was safe. Yes, I'm calling for a young lady that ran into the house and says she's just been raped. She's got a chain on her and everything. Send someone right away. This lady's naked and everything else. She said they've been holding her for three days. When the police responded to the home of David Ray Parker and Cindy Hendy, everything was just as Cynthia had said. The mattress where she had been had fragments of the broken lamp all over it. The bucket with her waist was next to it. The police immediately arrested Cindy and David. But these police officers would have no idea the horror they were about to uncover just outside the house inside of David's toy box. But let's pause here, because at this point, you may be wondering, like I was, who the heck is David Ray Parker, and how did he become this monster? David Ray Parker was born November 6, 1939, to parents Cecil and Nettie, but lived with extended family due to the family's poor financial situation and substance abuse issues. David's father, Cecil, took a liking to the bottle, and when he drank, he became very violent. His father would come on occasion and visit David and his sister, and in a very creepy dad move, he would bring a present for his young son. He brought David his porno magazines. While this is already screaming call CPS to me, what's more disturbing is this wasn't your bikini or Playboy-style pictorials. He introduced David to sadomasochist pornography. I've used the word sadist and masochist a lot already in this story, and I should probably explain. A masochist is someone who gets sexual pleasure from their own pain, whether it be physical or psychological, or from being humiliated. A sadist is someone who gets pleasure from degradation, humiliation, and causing pain to another. Put the two together and you have sadomasochism, which means you get sexual pleasure from causing pain psychologically or physically to yourself or to another. If you have ever heard the term BDSM when discussing bedtime activities, that acronym stands for bondage and discipline, domination and submission, sadism and masochism. However, before I had people coming after me, Trust me, I am not yucking your yum. You are allowed to be as kinky as your heart desires as long as it's with two consenting adults 
And also, responsible members of the BDSM community will tell you there is a massive amount of communication and consent given. Use of safe words and other safety measures to make sure people are safe and only doing what they are comfortable with. A lot of people are into this in varying degrees. There is a reason why the Fifty Shades of Grey series was so popular. However, we can all agree that Papa Cecil should not be showing his impressionable young son depictions of men degrading women sexually when David is like 10 years old at this point. I doubt he was sitting there going, Now son, if you find any of these pictures to be appealing, let's have a conversation about consent and respect and how to go about this properly. No, drunk dad was getting his rocks off and sharing inappropriate content with his son. I guess this was his version of father and son bonding time? Gross. Like, what happened to just going fishing or something? Now, this is my speculation. In my research, I did not find many mentions by David about his mother at all, but have done plenty of research on male serial killers where their victims were women. And often when you go through their history, you'll find that they had issues with their moms. I can imagine that feeling unprotected by your own mother against an abusive father and then sent away to live with family members would certainly give David some mommy issues. Then Daddy Dearest pops in to bond with you over depictions of the torture of women. Sounds like a recipe for disaster. There is a reason why I ask men that I date what their relationship with their mother is like. I'm just saying. David's young adolescent mind really seemed to absorb the imagery his dad shared with him. When he grew tired of the pictures, he did what kids do and let his imagination run wild. Instead of using that imagination to build a fort in the woods, play cops and robbers, David used his imagination, inspired by his dad's show-and-tells, to begin drawing depictions of raping, torturing, and even murdering women. At the age of 14, 14! His sister found his drawings, and she wanted nothing to do with her brother after that. Which, to that, I say fair. Boundaries are probably a good thing to have when your brother is David Ray Parker. David also claims that his maternal aunt sexually preyed on him. When she was alone with David, he claims that she forced him to have sexual intercourse over the course of years. She apparently was a masochist and would make David perform sexual acts on her that caused her physical pain. I have said it time and time again on this podcast. I have no sympathy or empathy for what these perpetrators go on to do to others, maybe in some part because of what happened to them. But I do feel terrible for young David, a child whose psyche was being formed by the awful adult modeling in his life. I wish someone had intervened on his and his future victim's behalf. But instead, David was left on his own most of the time to deal with the feelings of being a victim of sexual assault by a family member feelings of abandonment because his mother and father left him in the care of others, and having a drunk, violent father who then, in moments of sobriety, thought bonding over sexually violent material was a good idea. I wish he had gotten the help he deserved, but remember, this is in the 1940s, and we didn't know what we do now. Profiling and analyzing patterns in psychology and the characteristics of offenders did not even begin at the FBI until the 1970s. So David was left to his own devices. David was highly creative and intelligent. He would find old motors that broken down and teach himself how to take them apart and rebuild them. He was incredibly artistic and creative. And honestly, had David had a home life that was safe and encouraged healthy outlets for his creativity and engineering capabilities, who knows what positive impact he would have had on society and what he could have brought into this world with his intelligence. 
but instead, by the time he was 15, in 1956, his sexual fantasies could not remain a fantasy any longer, and he wanted to act on them. A lot of the public knowledge of his early life is due to David keeping detailed journals. We know that serial killers do a number of things, like visit the site of the murder or their burial spot, keeping personal possessions of the victims or trophies, as they're called, in order to relive the experience. David's journals were similar to this. By writing everything down, not only could he relive the experience, but he could keep record of what mistakes he had made and how to improve on his tactics. I also read multiple heavily redacted interviews between David and an FBI profiler, and it's, it's chilling. It doesn't take a genius to read through these interviews and the depictions of the fantasies, quote unquote, he tells the profiler, to realize he is using the word fantasies as a placeholder for the actual crimes that he committed. David's first victim was 15. He tied her spread eagle between two trees while he played with her. He says this is his first consensual sexual experience, but even if the girl did allow him to do this, it didn't quench his fantasies, because that same year, he wrote that he kidnapped and raped his first victim. David was just 15 years old. Investigators and profilers believe that this was also his first murder, although David only wrote in his journals the things he wanted to revisit. He wrote openly about holding women captive and the sexual torture he inflicted on them, but he didn't write about the girls' identities or what he did with them after he was through with them. It is believed that David Ray Parker was a murderer. He said so himself in these recorded tapes. But perhaps murder wasn't what gave him pleasure, so he didn't record it. Maybe it was just a means to an end. Maybe murder was just seen as a necessity to keep his victims from reporting him, or perhaps because this was in the early stages of his almost 45-year reign of terror on women, he just didn't have the knowledge of how far he could push his sadistic fantasies without causing fatal physical damage. David was constantly bullied by his peers in high school. He was really small for his age, only standing at 5'6 while in high school and painfully shy. You can imagine that the rage he felt for these bullies that he never would express to them only compounded and translated onto the rage that he carried out on his victims. While attending high school, it's thought that he carried out his first kidnapping, rape, and murder, and that experience only left him wanting more. His next journaling of an attack says that the victim was just 16 years old and that he had somehow managed to find an accomplice named Shirley to help him. We don't know what he said, what he did to convince Shirley to help him out with this, but she apparently would go on to assist him multiple times. As he put it, Shirley set her up to be kidnapped. How do these people find each other? I can't find a husband when there are 4 billion men on this planet. But somehow, the suspected 1% of the entire population that are psychopaths seem to always find their counterpart. Make it make sense, please. Is there like a hinge for murdering rapists sociopaths? David and Shirley began using tools and devices crafted by David for their sexual torture on these teen girls. Perhaps learning from his previous mistakes, he introduced tools that would cause pain to his victims, piercing their skin with fish hooks and needles, but would not cause fatal injury. However, it seems that no reports of rape or kidnapping were made during this time period and location in New Mexico. 
So perhaps these young women were just too scared to come forward. But what investigators believe, and what is probably more likely, is that his early victims were murdered and disposed of after David was through with them. By the time David was just 17 years old, it's believed that he had kidnapped, tortured, raped, and murdered four girls with Shirley's help. I'm not sure what became of Shirley, but at some point they went their separate ways because David met and married his first wife in April of 1959. Shortly after his wedding, David joined the military and was stationed overseas in Korea. He worked as a mechanic, which was probably well-suited to someone of his intellect and inventor's mind. But oh, I wish they had not given him this placement because his mechanical experience would only give him the experience and knowledge to craft his own sophisticated torture devices. David and his first wife welcomed a child in 1960, a son. I'm going to leave his name out of this because he's an innocent and can't help who his father was. But it seems like something went terribly wrong in David's marriage because when he was deployed, his wife gave her son up for adoption. David filed for a divorce and regained custody of his son and left his son with his mother. Yeah, that mom, the one who was not capable of caring for David, but apparently he thought was fit to care for his infant son. And then David returned overseas back to his deployment. Somehow, he managed to meet and marry his second wife a short time later in 1962. It wouldn't last long, though, because three months later, their marriage was over. I have to wonder if these failed relationships only fueled David's disdain for women and his desire to control them. Because after he was honorably discharged, he moved back to New Mexico, and it's believed that he continued kidnapping and torturing women at a rate of two to three a year. In 1963, he abducted two young women and put his experience with mechanics to use, fashioning tools that could be used to inflict electric shock to the most sensitive areas of the body, even inserting these items internally so that it would burn these women from the inside out. I'm getting emotional discussing this. I just honestly want to stop this episode and go take the hottest shower ever and and just wash away the memory of David Ray Parker. It it kills me to think of the horror that these women faced and the pain that was inflicted on them before they met their fate. In 1966, David, who was now 26, married an 18-year-old young mother. The following year, they welcomed a baby girl who I will name. His daughter was given the name Glenda Jean Ray after her mother, also named Glenda. But let's just say she did not turn out to be Glenda the Good Witch later in life. But how could you with David Ray Parker as your father? But of course, David couldn't play the role of father of the year when he had all of these sinister fantasies, and he up and abandoned his wife, stepson, and daughter. It's reported that he would go on and live out these sexual fantasies and then come back. And for whatever reason, his wife kept welcoming him back with open arms. Something I found interesting was that even though David himself was abused as a child, both his daughter and stepson from this marriage say that while he obviously was absent a lot from their lives, he was never physically abusive towards them. However, David wrote that he abducted a mother and her infant son. He tortured her and it's suspected that he killed them both. He wrote in his journal about this victim a location, E.B. Tent 
on E side. It's suspected that this location translates to a tent on the east side of Elephant Butte Lake. If you remember in the beginning of the episode, I talked about the area that would become David's main hunting ground when he resided in Elephant Butte and the massive reservoir that was located very close to him. Not only was Elephant Butte Reservoir, or Elephant Butte Lake as it's often referred to, incredibly deep, but it had thick layers of silt clay at the bottom of it that could absorb solid objects when they came to rest on the bottom of the lake. Think of the cartoon versions of sinking sand, and you'll have a pretty good image of what could happen to anything that found itself at the bottom of this lake, perhaps even including the bodies of his victims. Dad of the year, David, began taking notes from his own father, and it started exposing imagery of sadistic acts to his young daughter, Glenda. I'm going to refer to his daughter from here on out as Jessie, as that is the nickname she went by in her adult life. It's believed he didn't even try to hide who he was to Jessie. Maybe, and this is just a big maybe in my speculation, since he thought she was a part of him, his own blood, that maybe she would understand him. But what young child can make sense of being exposed to this type of imagery? David may never have physically abused his daughter, but I think it's safe to say that he abused her psychologically by entrusting her with his depraved secrets at such a young age. Sadly, he seemingly normalized his acts to his daughter, who was too young to know any differently. David and Jesse's mother legally ended their marriage, and David got connected with a BDSM community, and that's where he met his third wife. Again, how do, how do these people find partners? I'm just, I'm so confused. Since his third wife was part of the BDSM community and seemingly into this type of sexual play, it didn't seem odd to her that David began constructing sexual torture devices. It's not hard to imagine that she probably even consented to be a sort of guinea pig to him for these devices that he invented perhaps and hopefully not being aware that he would be using them to hurt other unconsenting women. By the time that Jessie was 19 in 1986, not only was she aware of her father's twisted fantasies and the acts that he committed, she had taken part in them. As someone who has had wonderful parents, it is so hard for me to understand this mentality, the ability to go along with something that seems so far outside the norms of society and not see it for what it is, wrong and criminal behavior. But then you think of gang mentality and how young people get brought in and in order to belong, they do these acts they may have never done on their own accord without that influence. David may, to myself and listeners, be an absolute scum, trash, vile stain on humanity. But to Jesse, this was her father, a father whose validation and admiration she desired. We don't know exactly what took place, but by June of 1986, something had caused a rift between Jesse and her father, and it ended in an explosive fight. After this fight, Jesse wanted her revenge, and what did she do? She called the FBI on her father. She told them everything about him, that he had regularly abducted and tortured women, and sometimes would kill them or sell them and traffic them to Mexico. The FBI apparently had a team that worked under the jurisdiction of something called the White Slave Traffic Act. And when I read that, you know if you've been listening to this podcast that I immediately had to do some digging, so bear with me for a brief history lesson. 
While the nature of this act was seemingly to prevent and prohibit the transportation of women and girls in interstate or foreign commerce for the purposes of prostitution, debauchery, or other immoral purposes, and to prevent the coercion or enticement of women and enticement of female minors to this life of prostitution, which is a cause I think we can all get behind, I had to know why it was called the White Slave Act. Well, in true racist American history nonsense, this act was originally passed in 1910, and according to the Legal Information Institute, it was believed by the white men in charge of our country that the reason for the sex trafficking and prostitution problem had to be, you guessed it, because of immigrants, the people who didn't look like them. I wish someone could go back in time and introduce these men to the numerous high-power white men that have taken advantage of women and even led sex trafficking rings. Anyone ever heard of Jeffrey Epstein? It was alleged that the immigrant women were brought to America for sexual slavery and that it was immigrant men that lured American girls into prostitution. This act then began to be used to criminalize even consensual sexual activity. The phrase immoral purpose in this act was broadly used to criminalize and prosecute unlawful, premarital, and you guessed it again, interracial relationships. Thankfully, this act, now known as the Mann Act, has been revised and amended numerous times as it clearly was being used to fuel and criminalize incredibly racist beliefs that interracial couples should not be allowed. Okay, tangent over. But that made my blood boil, and you know I love going down a history rabbit hole. But let's get back to the story. The FBI at this point had heard that David Ray Parker is a rapist, a kidnapper, a sex trafficker, from his own daughter, mind you, and they began doing some digging, but could not find anything to substantiate her claims, and nothing was done to stop him. Somehow, Jesse and her dad must have made up because Jesse would continue to be her father's accomplice in a number of abductions before his arrest when the brave Cynthia Vigil escaped her captors. And that is where I'm going to end part one of The Toy Box Killer. We still have so much to cover, but as his own audio recording suggests and his journals laid out, Cynthia was certainly not the first. But would she be the last of David Ray Parker's 45-year crime spree? Next week, we will take a deeper dive into another known victim, the police entering the toy box for the first time, and the truly unbelievable events that transpired during the investigation and trial of David Ray Parker and his accomplices. Yes, I said accomplices because before we are through, three more people will be arrested and three more people will lose their life. As always, you can support this podcast by sharing it with a friend, subscribing and rating it on whatever streaming app you listen to this on. And please take a minute if you can to write a review. It truly helps us more than you know. I will be back next Sunday to conclude the case of the toy box killer, David Ray Parker. But as always, until then. <laughs>